there has to be some special sauce to the product. If you're just selling a commodity product with no brand recognition that's associated with your brand, then unfortunately, you know, it's not just Amazon. Walmart will build a private label, Target will build a private label, and next thing you know, you're out of there. That's Faisal Mazood, CEO of Fabric. Faisal was there at the dawn of the e-commerce era, holding leadership roles at the biggest Fortune 500 online retailers, including Amazon, eBay, Groupon, and Staples. At Amazon, Faisal had the unique opportunity to learn the secrets to scaling e-commerce from Jeff Bezos. He took that playbook to Staples and helped transform a big box retail company into an e-commerce giant. Most recently, he headed operations for Project Wig, a Google X moonshot project where he was responsible for commercializing a drone delivery program, which aims to improve the speed, cost, and environmental impact of transporting goods. Today, Faisal will explore what the future of commerce looks like, both online and down at the corner store. This is Daniel Sachs, co-CEO of AppDirect, and it's time to decode e-commerce. Welcome to Decoding Digital, a podcast for innovators looking to thrive in the digital economy. I'm your host, Daniel Sachs, and I'll sit down with other founders, CEOs, and changemakers to decode the trends that are transforming the way we work. Let's decode. I am just completely thrilled to have the legend of the commerce and online retail world, Fezzo, with me today. Welcome. Thank you. Um, you've worked for the who's who of e-commerce pioneers, whether it's Amazon, eBay, you even did the Google X moonshot, also had the experience in traditional commerce, but what really brought you to the retail and e-tail space in the beginning? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually was introduced to e-commerce back in 1999 with Cosmo.com. And I don't know if you remember, you're probably too young then, but Cosmo.com was the largest internet retailer at that time backed by Amazon and SoftBank. We raised north of 300 million. And back then, the biggest core competency for Cosmo was to get uh, movies from the internet to your door in an hour. And you could return those movies at a Dropbox at Starbucks. And so we were in 11 cities, had about 20 fulfillment centers. And I just fell in love with the e-commerce. I felt that why would anybody have to go to a store if you can just go online and place an order and have it delivered to you in an hour? Unfortunately, at that time, it was just too early for one hour delivery. As you know, Prime Now launched only a few years ago. Cosmo set the stage for me early on on my passion for driving for online commerce and how brick and mortar was good to have, but shouldn't be the only way that people shopped. And that's where my interest sort of began and sort of evolved and went into Amazon from there. So since you started in e-commerce in 99, you saw three major recessions, right? The internet blow up, the 08 Great Recession, and then the current crisis that exists today. Do you see each one of them as just disproportionately making it harder and harder for brick and mortar retail to operate? You know, I have a, a theory on this and I'm pretty open about it, even on Twitter and uh, maybe too much candor at times. But I feel that brick and mortar retail is a necessity 
because humans need to interact with other humans, number one. Number two, you're okay for waiting for stuff sometimes, but you're not okay waiting for stuff all the time. Sometimes the instant gratification, you always need to go. And by the way, native online brands have had to open stores. Why do you need an Allbirds store? Why do you need an Everlane store? Like if stores were useless, why are they opening stores? They're opening stores because stores add value. You know, at Staples, we saw that every time we close the store in a zip code, our online sales for that zip code were affected because stores matter. It's a marketing tool as well. So I don't think stores are not relevant and these downturns are gonna eliminate stores. However, the retail industry has been married to stores. I mean, Walmart until recently was all about the vanity website because the stores were what was driving the business. Same with Target where both of them have come a long way now. Target is an excellent example. They have an unbelievable private label business. They have an unbelievable customer service at the store and they have a fairly decent website, not, not saying it's that amazing, but it's, it's okay. I think that combination has given them a pretty good flavor of what's possible. And a lot of folks disproportionately spent money on their retail stores while completely abandoning online. Some have gone the other way, completely abandoning stores, so they look like graveyards versus actual stores. It has to be a healthy balance and it has to come from a customer-centric approach. Customers care about experience, they care about availability, and they care about service. And that's why you'll see the ones that are doing well, it's pretty clear, right? I mean, Target, et cetera, are doing well because they have an excellent customer experience. So I don't see stores going away. However, the per capita store equation in the US was just obnoxious. There were too many stores, right? There was just too many stores. And so this is a bit of a rationalization that's taken place. And in some ways, frankly, the luxury stores closing now that you're noticing is because luxury retailers just never evolved. You have Farfetch.com and you have Essence and other marketplaces. Why on earth do you need to go to Saks? Farfetch has a better selection. You need to go to Saks if you want to try on those clothes, if you want to have better selection, better service. They'll exist, but they have to have some level of affinity with the customer. You can't just be, you know, buy from X and sell to Y. That model is dead. So let's go back to your Staples experience. So you were hired there to turn around Staples, CTO, Chief Digital Officer. Tell us about what the key outputs were when you got there. What did you need to change in culture? And then how did that end? Yeah, you know, Staples was uh, very unique for me. And I personally believe the best experience I had in my whole career because I got to that place because I felt Staples had 50 plus fulfillment centers, thousands of drivers, a full fleet and a robust B2C, B2B, and B2E enterprise business that could actually compete. I mean, Amazon was our customer till the time I left. I think Amazon is still a customer for Staples. So clearly there's some moat there, right? Staples had 5,000 salespeople that were driving enterprise sales and mid-market and SMB sales. Where I landed first was, the first thing that had to be addressed was the culture. The culture was very much, again, output driven. How could you improve that by focusing people on the key elements? Selection. We sold 30,000 SKUs when I got there. Well, Amazon sold 6 million office supply SKUs. So why are we declining? Oh, we're declining because people are going to Amazon to find the SKU. We're the iconic brand for office supplies, yet we don't sell the office supplies. So that was one. Why? Because there was this notion internally that, oh, we need to curate the selection. No, you don't. The customer curates the selection. You don't get to do that. 
That's a very traditional merchant think process. Merchants think they know what to sell. Yes, when it comes to designer product, sure, right? When it comes to Apple, sure. But when it comes to commodity, no. The answer is the customer decides what to sell. So our goals were, are we at parity on selection? Are we at parity on price? Are we at parity on service? Let me break each one down. On selection, no. We were far behind, we had to fix that. We did that, we went from 30,000 to 2 million. On price, no, we changed prices once a month. <laughs> Amazon changed prices every few seconds. So we had to build a lot of technology internally to fix that problem. And then third, delivery. We were actually better than anybody till today on delivery. We are next day delivery guaranteed. But Dan, nobody knew we were next day. Nobody, because we would not tell anyone. I don't know why, but it was just not a known fact. And the experience was so broken, final point is experience, that if you were a Staples Rewards member and you had millions of them, you're supposed to get free shipping. But you had a different login for Staples Rewards and a different login for Staples. So most of the people weren't taking advantage of free shipping the next day. So we had to fix a lot of the broken, you know, internal small stuff that just had to be fixed, lots of easy wins. But the biggest one was technology didn't have a seat at the table. It was just an IT shop. And I think that's where we had to do a lot of work to bring technology to the table. So when you talk about the small wins, for those listeners that are working at large enterprises, a small win might still take a year and cost millions of dollars. So what would you say to them? How do they get that quick win? Yeah, we had a monolith platform, as you can imagine, with IBM WebSphere. We moved to a microservices environment where we built a service for every single major domain in the company, which included single sign-on, etc. The biggest holdback for companies the size of Staples or companies that have been extremely successful in the past and now trying to evolve to being more digital, what holds them back is their order management systems and their e-commerce platforms. And what ends up happening is the tail wags the dog. The IT team starts telling the business what to do because what's not possible just doesn't even ever make it to the priority list. So when I arrived, I remember seeing there was 100 priorities. It was a very project management driven business. Well, you can't have a project management driven e-commerce business. It has to be a product management driven business. So the first thing we had to do was evaluate, why do we have so many priorities? Everything was a priority. So we broke that down, went from 100 to down to seven or eight. So you can understand that there was so many resources being expended on these hundreds of priorities that when you cut them off and say, okay, the ROI is just not there for these, let's build a product domain based model, which is landing pages, discovery, checkout and payment, and you know, traffic generation, whatever domain you want to call or mobile, you have very specific dedicated squads that are solving those problems. So you would have a product owner for landing pages. Their entire job is to improve how fast the landing page is. How do you get to that landing page? Does it have the right images? Does it have the right content? Does it have everything that's needed to provide the customer with the experience to go at the card? So top of funnel improvement and bottom of funnel improvement through the checkout and cart sort of squads. It just brings that level of rigor to the thinking of what's a priority versus not. You mentioned this approach of changing the culture what does it take to hire up people who are going to have a different DNA and to change that culture? And how difficult do you think it would be? I'll give you some examples. Dress policy, right? I wasn't going to wear suits and ties. They didn't make me do that. I could wear whatever I needed to wear to go to work. Video conferencing back then and not being physically available to the meetings. For a lot of traditional companies, I know it sounds dated, but back in 2013, you had to be in person. 
Another example, remote work. We acquired a lot of companies that were not in Framingham, Massachusetts because we had to bring the talent. That was a brand new culture shift for Staples, but we were able to adapt to that. I think if companies are able to look beyond now with Zoom, of course, everybody feels a lot more flexible, but we're quickly finding out that remote work is not the only answer. You need physical offices because you just need to do that. I would say a large part of it is having a culture that's willing to adapt in that process. What advice would you give to a small business owner that's been operating brick and mortar on how to transform? Depending on the size, on how big they are, right? If they're a sub 10 million brick and mortar, a couple of stores selling on Amazon could be quite helpful for their business because it gets their name out there. But they have to have some moat. There has to be some special sauce to the product. If you're just selling a commodity product with no brand recognition that's associated with your brand, then unfortunately, you know, it's not just Amazon. Walmart will build a private label, Target will build a private label, and next thing you know, you're out of there. Let's talk about the future of work. We've seen a lot of traditional brick and mortar stores on Main Street close down. We've seen also a lot of great digital first businesses emerge. Where do you think the future of retail exists and where do you think the bulk of the people will be employed? I think retail, you saw the big uptick recently with COVID. The growth in online retail is no surprise. It just happened faster than we expected. Grocery was the biggest shocker, right, with what happened. There's a ton more growth to happen in grocery, in my opinion. I think that the future of retail is 100% omnichannel. There's no way this is going to be just online or just offline. Nobody shops just online and just offline. It's a hybrid of both. Now, one could argue it might be more online and less offline. Sure, for certain businesses. But if you're going for sporting goods, you may be more offline than online. But if you're doing, I don't know, books, of course, you're more online than you are offline. So it all depends on the category. What's going to really, really matter is what does your brand stand for? Sustainability, environment, hygiene, you know, being compliant with the most basic things. Gen Z approved sort of methodologies are going to play a very big role, right? Once you go to an Apple store, you don't really want to go to Sears. Why? Because it looks like, you know, what happened here? It's a whole different world. What's special about what you do? And that, you know, is going to matter. That's a fascinating insight. So the idea is to find something that you're passionate about, that's differentiating, that fits the demand from a target market that may not be captured today. Yeah, I mean, think about it, right? Like the commodity products, right, are just diamond. Why is the honest company doing so well? You tell me. Why is it doing so well? Because they've built a brand that people trust. You can try to go and tell them 100 times, go buy Amazon Basics over Honest. They're not going to because they believe in the mission. They believe in the R&D that the team has done. They believe in the brand. And now it's got a moat. Like, go ahead, compete. Let's see what you got. That's what makes the difference, the continuous R&D into the product. There's a reason Google survived and thrived because the Google R&D on search is bar none. Nobody else can do that. Well, Yahoo died because they gave the entire search business to Bing and Inktomi and whoever else. That's not how it works. So I think if you have a core product or set of products, you focus on those and really get better at that. There's no reason you can't be successful on Amazon, off Amazon, online and offline. But the moment you take your eye off that ball and you're sort of trying to figure out how do I optimize my profit, 
What's your advice on how someone goes about getting advice on getting buy-in, whether it's from customers, partners, merchants? You know, you need sponsors inside the organization. And typically, if you have sponsors that are part of the executive team that are bought into your idea, putting those runs on the board become a lot easier. But most sponsors want to see data. So if there's data, it's hard for anybody to say no. So my encouragement would be, if you want to do something, make sure you've got enough data around it. So having real clickstream data that you can represent and say, well, if we do this, then this happens. And here's where the ROI is. I think presenting that when you're in your initial stages to the right executive sponsors really helps move the ball forward. And it's helped me in my career a lot. And, you know, we launched global shipping platform at eBay. It was purely because we had the data to say, guys, we have so much traffic coming from overseas that want to buy this product, but our deliveries take 30 days. Why can't we do this in seven days or less? Well, why can't we compute landed duty paid cost in session versus after session? And, you know, we built it, we shipped it and we shipped it close to seven years before Amazon because we had the data. So I think the single biggest mistake a product owner can make is being obsessed by the product. Once you get obsessed by the product, there's no way out because now you stop worrying about the customer. You're just obsessed about how beautiful your product is. Well, unfortunately, your product is not that good until the consumer thinks it is. So it's that healthy balance of building a great product, but getting the validation from the customer before you get too obsessed with the product, right? I mean, one could say Apple was obsessed with Apple TV. What a colossal failure, right? They were obsessed with a whole bunch of things that didn't work out in the end. So being customer obsessed is more important than being product obsessed. And that would help. So you've been at the intersection of online, offline, brick and mortar delivery. And as one of your moonshots, I heard about what you're up to, which is really exciting around drone delivery. Can you tell us more about that? I think that drone delivery will change the way suburban and semi-rural rural areas of the world operate today. If you look at what happens in these areas, they're always the last ones to get the love from any kind of innovation that you see. When DoorDash launches, where are they going to deliver first? Main cities. Typically, these other zip codes are waiting ages to get any kind of love. I think drones unlock that in a major way, right? We're delivering food to you in six minutes and traveling six miles to do so and doing it through a pretty incredible experience. I think that there's a long way to go to make it at the scale that you see today e-commerce at, but I think there's enough use cases there that you can unlock where customers really need those. So from an overall status of where we are, drones will be another vehicle in this fleet. So you'll have bikes, cars, trucks, and drones. And even one could argue foot traffic, right? You could have people deliver on their feet in the city. And we did that at Cosmo. So drones is just another, it, it augments what's there. It's not the end all. And I think it's a very important one. Uh, hence, I was you know, very passionate about it still am. Skeptics out there who will either not believe that it's possible or never want to adopt or find it really scary. Obviously, at Alphabet and Google Moonshots, there must have been something in the culture that enabled someone like you to say, I'm going to try this crazy thing and I'm going to figure out every way to make it possible, even though anyone would tell me here are the thousand reasons why it's going to totally fail from the package dropping on someone's head or from the regulation issues. What was it about the culture that allowed you and others to kind of focus on something that was such a long shot? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, just the being a moonshot, Google X focuses on complex problems that are not easy to solve, but somebody has to solve them. So that's why Google has the competency to do that. The idea was born well before I arrived. I was actually advising X before I joined full time. And, you know, they went through quite a few iterations of the aircraft and the model itself of how and what Wing was going to do. I guess the good news was if anybody has any skepticism around it, they should see our deliveries live. You can see them online. There's videos out there and there's live customers that are using it. It's just, you know, these things take time and they're not going to happen overnight. Just look at the first car. It wasn't born overnight. People were scared of cars, right? Everybody wanted to be on a horse. So in this case, it's more, you have to treat drones as another vehicle in the process versus the only one. That's when it becomes a little bit easier and digestible for folks to understand that, okay, for this delivery, I can imagine this coming by a drone. For this delivery, this should come by a truck. And the package contents, the weight, the dimensions are important to keep in mind for that. So yeah, I think it's a matter of time before everybody starts getting drone delivery. It's just not going to happen overnight. I don't think it should because you got to keep all the safety elements in mind. Super fascinating. So obviously you've been a part of e-commerce to date. You're part of the future. You're working on something new. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so I uh, recently, I was on the board of a company called Fabric. It is a e-commerce platform, modular e-commerce platform. We help brands succeed online. And the biggest part of Fabric is being extremely flexible and extensible where you could be using other platforms, but you are able to integrate with our commerce APIs seamlessly. We're actually backed by Redpoint Ventures. They're a lead investor. Well, congrats. Yeah, definitely super exciting. And we know definitely how complex it is to drive commerce transformations. Really excited for what you're building. Yeah, and also with this COVID times and grocers and everybody else going online, you can imagine it's quite the frenzy to get the right platform. And we are super against replatforming because I haven't heard of the last time anybody said our replatform went well. It always goes badly because it's just too big a change. So we believe in a very modular approach into improving your growth opportunities online and Fabric stands with you as a partner. So check it out when you get a chance. Excellent. As you look ahead, what's one word that summarizes how you feel about where we're headed? For? For the digital economy. I think there's going to be more change in the next two to three years from a digital consumer perspective than we probably saw in the last 10. It's going to be pretty dramatic because Facebook coming out with their native experiences in Instagram and Marketplace it's going to be a seismic change there. I mean, the Craigslist and eBay, like, good luck. What's going to happen there? Already, you're probably seeing what's happening. Grocers, you know, this is a 800 billion, I think, US business that's going online. Gigantic move. And then brands and Amazon, of course. So a lot of change in the next two, three years versus what you've seen. So I would say change is the only constant and we're looking forward to it. Excellent. And what advice would you give to someone navigating this world of change? I would say keep your options open. And really, when making decisions, focus on the consumer versus the constraints. Because when you focus on the constraints or what you can't do because of your current environment, you quickly forget what the consumer wants. And this happens all the time in traditional retail. It's always about, well, our system can't do that. Well, let's not worry about that. Let's start from a blank canvas and see what is the ultimate experience we're seeking. So I think the customer obsession would be really important. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Awesome. Take care.
on the next episode of Decoding Digital. To really live that, you have to have leaders who want to live it. You cannot say it. And I think there are too many companies who talk about their purpose and they talk about their sustainability goals and their diversity, and then they don't live it. So I think the first thing is that you have to look at yourself and your leadership team and say, what do we stand for? And are we prepared to live accordingly? CEO of Microsoft Sweden, Helen Barnikov. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast player of choice. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.